You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everyone out there listening, live and all those listening later. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. This week, I don't know, maybe it's COVID lockdown, but I have been ruminating on the climate disaster and what needs to happen for a serious approach to change for a better future. Up pops an email from a chap called Alexander Dunlap, who is a serious academic, a postdoctoral fellow at the Centre for Development and Environment, part of the University of Oslo, with a link to his essay entitled End the Green Delusions, Industrial Scale Renewable Energy is Fossil Fuel Plus. This follows in the footsteps of a recent film, Mike Moore, who you'll you'll remember, of course, Mike Moore, who is the executive producer and promoter for this film called Planet of the Humans, based on a fellow producer, Ozzy Zenner's uh, work. He's the author of a book called Green Illusions, The Dirty Secrets of Clean Energy and the Future of Environmentalism, who is quoted as saying that is Aussie is, perhaps we should expand our horizons to measure the virtues of electric cars against those of walkable neighbourhoods and the costs of generating more energy against the savings of using less. So you get the idea. Anyway, cat amongst the pigeons stuff when it comes to the ideas that renewables are a serious answer to the problems facing the life forms on this planet. We start this morning with a chat with Alexander Dunlap, follow-up with a critique of his article and the film Planet of the Humans by Zane Elkhorn, a fellow 3CR broadcaster from Friday Breakfast. In the final half hour of the program, we actually will return to these issues, but from a particularly Australian perspective, with a word from Kate Lee from AFIDA, Union Aid Abroad, and Trevor Gore, National Policy Research Officer for the Electrical Trade Union. They were part of a Zoom forum uh, put together, or co-presented by uh, the uh, Search Foundation and uh, several unions, Uh, and it was starring Professor Sean Sweeney called Energy Democracy and Energy Ownership in the the Context of Corona Crisis. Uh, You can catch the whole feature on uh, the uh, Search Foundation's YouTube channel. So uh, just go on to YouTube and look up uh, Search Foundation and you'll find their uh, channel and their various episodes. Very interesting stuff. Anyway, um, these two were part of that forum 
and uh, they were able to give some perspective on what's going on for people in Asian countries and in Australia in particular. Big thoughts for a Saturday, or if you were listening later by podcast, but we will lighten up the program with Kevin Healy's wrap-up of the week sandwiched in the middle of the uh, two half hours. I am not in love But I'm open to persuasion When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. But with a love I could hold my You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. Alexander Dunlap put a strong argument for the myth of green technology being the saviour of the planet in his articles and books work, especially if you look at the damage to Indigenous communities displaced by green technology investments. I spoke to him about his article, End the Green Delusions, Industrial Scale Renewable Energy is Fossil Fuel Plus. I'm really impressed with your uh, article, uh, mainly because it seems to me that the idea of uh, the extractionist uh, process of capitalism, which is expected to just continue using renewable energy processes, appears to be what everybody thinks is going to solve the ecological and climate change problems. Your contention appears to be that actually it's the capitalist system that's the problem. Do you want to talk to that? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, most certainly that's the case, you know, and it's it's capitalism, but it's also really kind of the organization of industrialism and technological development as well. And I mean, they're all deeply connected and intermeshed. I mean, there's a lot of, there's multiple ethnographies now. There's my book, The Renewing Destruction. There's another great book, Power Struggles, about kind of energy development and so-called transition in Southern Catalonia. And there's a lot more work. And the big thing right now is looking into kind of the downstream, the kind of, you know, the decommissioning of e-waste and also kind of upstream with the natural resource extraction necessary for kind of renewable energy, so-called renewable energy, or as I call, or I think is more accurate, and I think people should start using is the fossil fuel plus to refer to renewable energy systems, because in a lot of ways, they're not renewable. They are very much dependent on hydrocarbon extraction of various varieties, which are very hard to trace and track, but also extreme kind of mineral extraction. And I, there's been a lot of really great reports that have come out in addition to my kind of my article that are actually getting deeper into the amount of natural resource extraction and the amount of e-waste that that either electric vehicles, solar, and also kind of and also what energy development contain or what they require. I'm quite interested in your experience, your uh, work with uh, wind farms in Mexico. Tell me about that experience. Yeah, I mean, so what was it? Back in December 2014, I had a lot of friends and contacts who kind of put me in touch with Solidarity Caravans to to mostly Zapotec, but also Akut communities in struggle against wind energy development. 
And so very quickly, I was kind of brought into this area. And my purpose was to really look at what's the social impact of wind energy development. You know, what's what's really the frontier of the green economy doing and what's it really look like? And so I knew that there was problems. I knew there was contestations. I knew that it wasn't all it kind of it was supposed to be and kind of what we're sold in marketing. But I very quickly found out it was a lot worse than I realized it was going to be. And mostly, and, and so there's a, there's a couple layers. I mean, my book kind of ends with a conclusion reviewing genocide studies and actually talking about kind of the ecocide genocide nexus or the genocide ecocide nexus in terms of kind of indigenous populations and what actually wind energy development is doing in the area. You're talking about this concept of sacrifice areas and sacrifice people, really. Yeah, I mean, that, that was a term that, at least by my mind, really came about from the Native American, Native North American activist, Russell Means, who, who was critiquing. It was, also, it was in a speech to, the, kind of the, to a lot of kind of Marxists and leftists and him kind of challenging them to say, like, hey, we're not into your program and that we're often, we're being treated as a sacrifice people in, in kind of multiple ways. But yeah, so when I was there, I, I more or less joined the resistance or was there kind of doing participant observation or, and really kind of looking at how a lot of the conflict dynamics that were kind of going on and why people were defending, why people were fighting. And in the case of Guijaro and Zapotec or Avro Bragon, this was a rural, com- this was a small community that has a very kind of strong and rebellious history, kind of also with kind of the social movements in the 70s there. But the kind of the issue of wind energy development, really, a lot of the existing political factions came together and lots of different people over actually how they're affecting the sea and is going to affect fishing practices and land access and kind of also communal relations. But also a big deal was actually how money was being distributed, how politicians were kind of getting a lot of the money to allow the wind energy companies in there and how money wasn't distributed in a fair way. And so this all, so losing access to the sea, uh at the times that people wanted having more control in the area and also having some people receive lots of money some people really receive a little bit and most people not receiving any money in addition to that entire towns around these areas weren't actually consulted in any real and meaningful way led to them building doing construction and some of the people who were in the resistance were even kind of a part of helping with the construction because they didn't necessarily know or at least what a lot of people tell me is that they weren't they had no idea the scale of what would be going on on the bar to Santa Teresa and that there was a lot done to actually conceal what they were doing but eventually yeah they uh when people started to actually feel what was happening in terms of regulations with kind of ID checks for the areas where they go fishing and actually seeing machinery come in to start digging big holes there was a there was an uprising where they kind of where they went and started burning wind energy company trucks and pushing out the company which then resulted in pol- a series of different kind of police interventions where they actually repelled and combated the police and so i came to kind of live in this context to see what was going on and i in this region there's a lot of wind in there i mean right now there's over 2000 wind turbines developed in the region and I was living in a village that was completely surrounded in the north, going around and looking at the different health impacts and kind of how, what life living under wind turbines was like. I looked at another wind park, the Bihiosho Wind Park, run by Gas Natural Finoza, a Spanish natural gas company, who had just recently, through kind of force, was able to build, through money, but also through force, build a wind park right on the lagoon. And then there's the town, Gijero, that I lived in that 
didn't have any wind turbines because of its kind of militant push to prevent the construction of these things to kind of protect their land, sea, and dignity, as I wrote in an article. The process of capitalism at a transnational level creates a system that not only has to expand, but creates a notion that things have to be in grids and that uh, profit has to go to some centralised group of people and uh, it's completely disassociated from the actual production of the, uh, the energy. So you're saying that basically it wouldn't matter if it was coal mining or if it was wind farms. Is that what you're saying? Oh, I mean, it's, it's, it's just more complicated than that because while you're going to see a lot of similar kind of ecological distribution conflict dynamics, as you could call it, like in geography, will appear where they're trying to set up and build wind turbines in the same way when they're trying to build coal mines or copper mines. You're going to see similar level. You're going to see really extremely similar levels of kind of land control contestation struggles, adverse incorporation in terms of how they're including people into the projects, faulty consultations. The use so forth, of the people, police as military. Using the police to actually enforce these things. People are re- responding by trying to organize their own popular consultations. So in that sense, they're extremely similar. But the thing with wind energy or any kind of so-called renewable energy or fossil fuel plus project is that you you have the same thing. You have the same kind of land control or maybe land grabbing dynamics that are going on with any type of extraction project, whether it's conventional, you can say hydrocarbon or mineral, or with the green so-called renewable or fossil fuel plus. But with the fossil fuel plus, there's a whole supply chain. And even also for the conventional, there's a whole factory supply chain behind that also. But so for all of these types of mines, for all these types of kind of new energy infrastructures, you have a whole series of other mines behind them to secure raw materials. You have a whole new processing plant to actually separate and use chemicals to actually get the metals outside of the, the, the different ore that they're pulling out. There's different transportation to different manufacturing facilities and components and labor issues and just ecological destruction of large industrial areas to even process these things outside the mines, which includes the the factories that build the machines to do the mining, to do the transport, that then leads them to the areas where, as in my book, Renewing Destruction, we're analyzing and looking what's going on on the ground with kind of how companies are trying to control indigenous land to build these projects. And then the thing that was brought to my attention by Benjamin Sovacol and his colleagues is they have a new article that came out, has a lot of really good numbers, but they really highlight the issue of actually e-waste and decommissioning for these projects. And in short, while Europe, especially France, is doing everything it can to actually begin recycling and doing more of these things, at best, a lot of these things are still at only a 20% level of recycling. And then you have lots of cases like in the United States where they're actually just burying wind turbines in South Dakota and different parts of the areas where these metals aren't being recycled. Wind turbines, for example, only last summer between 25 and 35 years. And they also, in and of themselves, they, they cause a lot of ecological destruction. Clearly uh, a process of change and no dealing with the actual underlying problems with the worldview that Mm -hmm. basically was developed during the imperialist period where the appropriation of wealth and resources from one part of the population 
of the world uh, went into the hands of a very small few for their well-being while everybody else suffered. And there mm. was no, and there has been no clear change, and there doesn't appear to be any clear change in the wings. I mean, there's a couple of things. I would say that it goes back way further than the kind of the imperial period or the or colonialism as an era. It goes back to the kind of the enclosure laws in England. It goes back to the ideas of private property. It goes back to civilization itself in terms of how it organizes hierarchy, dominates landscapes, and kind of creates different divisions of labor. But for sure, especially in the kind of the 17th century with the enclosures and also especially the kind of construct of gender as a way to kind of divide people from each other and create roles. But yeah, I, I would take it one step further, even with, in terms of, uh, I mean, <laughs> the renewable energy kind of the green economy, sustainable development, uh, fo these fossil fuel plus systems, they're intensifying extraction to an extreme degree. I mean, and they're, they're being developed simultaneously alongside pipelines, nuclear power plants, as in the case of France, where I was just working on an energy infrastructure project that's being resisted, is that all that, it's not that <laughs> this kind of push towards transition is really kind of, is kind of a discourse or it's, it's a very nice narrative. And it's going to differ a little bit in most countries. I think Norway, where I'm based right now, they, they have a, they have a stronger profile because about 97% of the country's energy is run on hydro kind of resources, but they're still developing tons of wind energy and especially on Sami and indigenous territory for export. So they're still kind of <laughs> engaging in this kind of capitalist accumulation and kind of export energy strategy. I guess from a very narrow <laughs> modeling perspective, it could be a victory. But if you're actually in touch with different ecosystems or different kind of people, whether indigenous or non-indigenous who want to, embody a different set of values in terms of how they relate to the land and how they produce and kind of live their lives it's a nightmare that is intensifying the existing and every existing type of class gender <laughs> ecological and kind of ideas of human supremacy it's intensifying a lot of the pre-existing issues do you see this as a period of opportunity because it's coming to a crisis and obviously, the, these approaches are an expression of anxious national governments uh, and the ones who are even more forward-looking than ones uh, in Australia, which are busily involved in a love affair with fossil fuel. Uh, it's, they're busily opening new commerce here. Um, they're... Uh, uh, keen to undermine our artesian basins and, and our water supply and Australia is really a very dry continent so they have no morals about environmental destruction or are there any solutions coming from your work you're ringing a bell you're ringing the bell you're tolling the bell you're telling people something that actually in a funny kind of way is obvious or as they used to say when I was a kid, if it was a dog, it would bite you. But um, are there any solutions in this? Um, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm an advocate of sustainable or decolonial degrowth. I'm an advocate of a lot of the post-development strategies. I think forest gardening, permaculture, I advocate energy autonomy. You know, so in general, I think there's for a long time, <laughs> for centuries, there's been ways to kind of work and live with work with the land and to kind of produce food in certain types of ways that's going to support the soil support the forests. there's ways to build human habitations that work with landscapes 
that are definitely more dignified than the boxes that we're crammed in. So I think there's plenty of ways, whether it's from degrowth to bioregionalism, and even in the frontiers of conservation, there's kind of the new idea of convivial conservation that's kind of really pushing a lot of the ideas of Ivan Illich in terms of convivial technologies and and I, you could call degrowth or post, I mean, he's the father of post-development. So I think there's tons of possibilities and tons of ways that people can do things. But like you've already mentioned, there, the train of industrial and technological progress is kind of appears it's left the station. Public policy is not reflecting on it in any real meaningful way. Environmental policy is usually in creating greater environmental degradation and also environmental conflicts, which is kind of well established at this point. I can sit here and read you the numbers of the amount of water, the amount of mining necessary for the use of electric cars, for the use of solar, for the use of uh, wind energy development. I mean, it's an insane amount of extraction and these things need, and then the level of recycling doesn't exist. So uh, there's always a possibility. And I think people really have to start talking to their own, to the, their neighbors and people around them or on their own or whatever way they can wherever they stand, whether they might be mayors or academics or people in different institutions, to everything they can to agitate, to create more space, to actually have more meaningful and real ecological solutions to, to improving the relationships and our interactions with our environments and each other, which means not putting some kind of measurement to kind of make profit out of it, which means really stopping the kind of ideology of profit and profiteering from each, from each other, but off of each other, but also the land. Um, I mean, it's interesting but, because, because yeah. um, uh, here uh, there's been quite a lot of conversation around uh, doing things on a very local level. Like uh, there's problems with trying to get national uh, pa uh, parties to actually move in areas that don't reflect their political battle. They're in the midst of some political battle while people on the ground are experiencing real uh, anxiety about the future. I'd say two thirds, you know, the one third, two thirds sort of idea, two thirds of Australians have quite a strong uh, perception that there is something up, right, in terms of the environment. They may feel they still want to do their international travel and they might, whatever, you know, so they want the same life that they're used to. There are others who are more practical. But the point I'm making is that there is a lot of discussion, I think, on the left regarding having influence locally, you know, using the local council as a tool for change, that type of thing. You know, instead of being endlessly frustrated with uh, people not applying themselves in a a practical and reasonable fashion that relates to the needs of the human and the the environment uh, rather than profit. Uh, is that something that is on your radar? Well, yeah, I mean, a bit of what you described with using the kind of the local kind of council system, if I'm correct. That's or what the kind we've of the, got. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's more or less very similar to Murray Bookchin's proposal of libertarian municipalitarianism which was a, a specific kind of program or way to try to start kind of seizing political power in the local to kind of promote kind of more dem radical democratic social change. It also became linked to kind of ideas of bioregionalism with Kirkpatrick Sale. So, I mean, that, that's one way, but there, and there's, there's so many ways. I mean, so 
book chin and bioregionalism, they offer you very nice, more horizontal, more direct democratic kind of proposals of actually how to begin starting and kind of organizing these things. But there's many different ways you can organize and there's a lot of very serious challenges. There's lots of, there's a lot of people very concerned about making sure that they're bringing in more money and maintaining certain types of lifestyles. The, the state in many ways appears ex more or less unresponsive or will only make half measures or underhanded measures as I would describe maybe the green economy in terms of how they're promoting and selling win-wins. And I think people honestly really believe in that within policy circles or within business. But at the same time, it's it's creating disastrous results in terms of actually repairing, with actually repairing the relationships between humans and their environments. But also, kind of, we can use the in terms of protecting biodiversity and also kind of soil regeneration and things like this. So it's there's a lot of ways to go about it, and it's it's going to be a struggle. But my my advice would be to bet wherever you are, whatever position or trade or career that you're in, is to start moving in a direction that is pushing towards more kind of chaotic organizing, direct democracy in terms of actually how, and all, but really more listening to the land and how you can actually begin growing your own food and reviving soil and actually working with the trees in the areas because with climate and heat, it's, it's all gonna get a lot worse. And I mean, really now is the time to start really working with the trees and protecting ecosystems and water. And now, I mean, maybe, maybe related to your question is right now, during the kind of the corona crisis, whatever, a lot of people are hoping this will be kind of a sign for kind of social change. It doesn't really look bright on my end in terms of for whenever there's a disaster, it, it creates opportunity for lots of different actors. It's for sure an opportunity for community organizers and people to open up conversations and do things. But at the same time, it's also, it's also an opportunity for pharmaceutical companies weird kind of grabs of public funds that are going into the private sector to do God knows what with health systems and things that at least I'm from the United States, which is already a huge disaster. And, you know, going to the hospital is only is something you do if only there's a bone coming out of your arm, you know? America, the government, central government is proving to be incompetent, but still maintaining its promotional activity. I mean, if you've got people, 3,000 people dying a day, that's not a good look. No, it's not. But as long as people tolerate it, you read history, it's until people become ungovernable, the governments even begin listening and start making the reforms necessary to make more livable environments. And so that's the unfortunate reality of the situation of politics I think we face. Obviously, this is going to be more context specific to certain countries in terms of how it works. And there's a different or at least a slightly different political culture in terms of how industrial systems work and or capitalism or social democratic countries versus more authoritarian ones but there are propaganda systems that have you know are owned by capitalist forces so people have no perception that there's any other possibilities and so i suppose that's why they believe that it everything has to be done in an a major industrial process yeah, definitely. I mean, maybe the first enclosure, you know, when, when you're talking about kind of colonization and things like this, the first enclosure is the enclosure of the imagination. And this is probably one of the most damaging enclosures. But yeah, of course, I, I'm, a, I'm an advocate of kind of decentralization and people taking back their energy and being responsible for how much they're consuming and using. And also taking, <laughs> taking justice against the kind of actors and corporations and companies and governments that are, I advocate energy autonomy. But it, one of the biggest flaws or concerns in it is you have 
all these companies and governments that have profited on plundering the environment, plundering people, plundering landscapes, and they say, oh yeah, take back your energy. And I think no matter what, people are going to have to bring it to scale and to actually see what that is, either on kind of an individual, communal, or even neighborhood scale or small town. But uh, yeah, I think it's very good. And But I think we, it's my own personal concern that I, I think we need to even start thinking of different ways to organize that we might not even be familiar with and start experimenting with other kind of disorganized forms of, of organizing and living that we may not even be able to see past. You know, I would think of kind of Murray Bookchin's libertarian municipalitarianism as being, you know, this, the ba like the starting point and that there should actually be more interesting ways to dissolve even that kind of thinking to, to kind of go deeper into kind of more chaotic forms of living and, and to, and stopping the kind of spread of different, to stopping the spread of infrastructure. And I mean, ultimately decentralization is something I would advocate in a lot of ways, but right now we're watching kind of corporate and kind of state systems employ their own form of administrative decentralization that is through kind of a, with a hierarchical purpose and kind of end game of whether it's kind of capital accumulation or the control of space or kind of natural resources, whether it's human or non-human, it's employing, it's just spreading its tentacles across the, <laughs> across the world in terms of how it's trying to maintain kind of the acquisition of resources and people. So decentralization in and of itself is not necessarily the answer, but the, the kind of the sociocultural values that people have and uphold and how they do this, I think is very important. And, and for sure, decentralizing kind of fossil fuel or kind of renewable energy systems and having de direct democratic governance and kind of talking about these things is maybe the first step. But I think, I hope that there's more beyond that personally. If you ever want more resources, I, I recommend kind of the new work by Benjamin Sovacol and colleagues on the decarbonization divide. If you want to get more and up-to-date numbers of kind of the levels of extraction and, and also the problems with kind of e-waste, as well as there's a fun short piece by Jason Hickley, an economist at the London School of Economics on the limits of clean energy. If, and then of course, there's also my work, my book kind of looking at the, the real, the reality of kind of wind energy development in indigenous territory in Mexico, but also the piece you read on Fossil Fuel Plus and the need to end green delusion.
Just a little bit of Swedish 1980s punk recommended by Xander. We'll end the program with his other selection. I wasn't the only person who reacted to Alexander's article. Zane from Green Left Friday Breakfast, who has been reviewing material related to the environment for many years, was pleased when I asked him to talk to me about Xander's article, as well as the new film, Causing Friction, Planet of the Humans. Um, Alexander Dunlap, who you've just interviewed, has um, actually a bit more nuanced and a bit better position than Ozzy Zena from uh, Planet of the Humans. Ozzy uh, Zena, for instance, claims that there's no payback on renewable energy, that more energy gets invested in making things like wind turbines and solar panels um, than you actually get back from using these. Alexander Dunlap has a more nuanced perspective and says these things are fossil fuel plus you expend fossil fuels in the mining and the smelting and the manufacturing and the transporting of these things and setting them up and then they produce renewable energy and so he's making a a more um, sensible argument I would say and he acknowledges that they do actually once you set them up they produce renewable energy the reality is wind and solar are capturing large amounts of energy in the form of sunlight or wind for many many years and various studies have shown that they have a huge uh, surplus of energy relative to what went into producing them um, now either there's a conspiracy by um, organizations like the CSIRO or its counterpart in the USA the National Renewable Energy Laboratory either there's a conspiracy by organizations like that to hide the real um, carbon footprint of, of making these things or they are correct in assessing that there is a initial payback period in the case of wind farms and can be as little as three to six months in the case of solar panels a bit longer as much as one or two years and then after that they've paid back the energy that went into producing them and they go on to produce a bunch of um, carbon free electricity for the next however long it could be 20 25 30 years one of the arguments that alexander dunlap is trying to make is oh, the accounting of that process is a bit dodgy okay maybe he's right maybe a wind farm takes instead of three to six months maybe it takes six to nine months to pay back the energy that went into producing it but coming back to that physics argument this kind of marginal thing about oh they're not accounting for it properly and they didn't think about the truck well it's debatable that they they left these things out but even if they did i don't think that updating the accounting process is going to radically change the fact that there's a, a very very large surplus of renewable energy produced by these things and that's today under capitalism where 
capitalists don't care about trashing the environment. They don't care about burning fossil fuels to run things like steel, um, steel furnaces, um, aluminium smelters, silicon smelters. So if we had a future 100% renewable energy system, then this cyclical argument would be ended because the further we go towards 100% renewables, the more we can start to run the infrastructure that recycles the steel or makes the iron, the more we can start to run those off renewable energy or renewable inputs like hydrogen. So I'm probably sounding like a bit of a technology fetishist here, and I don't want to completely go down that path because I think that as much as I didn't ultimately like the Mike Moore film and as much as I disagree with Alexander Dunlap's um, essay, nonetheless, they do raise a bunch of valid points about the ecological impacts of producing these things and they do need to be looked at and unpacked and... Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. I just think they go a bit far in saying renewables are just as bad as coal or they are the they are the like coal 2.0 or something. I think we're we're forgetting how bad the climate crisis is here. It's 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 qualitatively a a worse situation that we very urgently need to deal with. The other thing is the key element it seems to me that underlies a lot of this is actually the exploitative capitalist methodology that should actually be put centre stage rather than renewable energy processes. Because uh, one of the key elements that comes out in Dunlop's paper is based on his um, doc, uh, doctoral work, which was actually with uh, the Indians in Mexico who were basically on that isthmus uh, supplanted by a wind farm. They had no uh, say in it and the military and the police were used to dislocate them, remove them from their lands. Now, uh, it, it goes on to discuss the uh, American Native Indians talking about themselves as being sacrifice people sacrifice lands for and I think that this is actually a really important thing that needs to be discussed which is and it's the hmm. same as COVID the business about uh, people who are uh, affluent and have distance and uh, space to be in while others are being sent out on the front line and in America in particular it's being shown that uh, black and Latinos, a very high level uh, rate of uh, attrition in terms of COVID. And they have a, an establishment that's saying, oh, well, you know, we don't really care. <laughs> it's you, you're dying. Um, and it's the same sort of principles around uh, uh, energy. Uh, it, it's a, um, it really needs to be... Uh, um, discussed and factored in, I guess. I'm sorry. Absolutely. Yeah, and the point that that Alexander Dunlap is making about that case in Oaxaca in Mexico, uh, there's been other examples like that. 
in parts of the Scottish Highlands and in South Australia. Going back probably 10 years ago, there was a wind energy development that was being put in on Aboriginal land. Um, sacred burial grounds were being disturbed to put these wind farms in. And that is absolutely unacceptable. And we need to be very clear about this. Uh, whether it's under capitalism or under a future post-capitalist system, it's absolutely not acceptable for big infrastructure uh, projects to be rammed through against the wishes of um, Indigenous First Nations communities, people of colour, and indeed any local community. Communities need to have a power of veto over projects like this, and if they're going to be built, it needs to be because there is a collective understanding that the way we're going to stop runaway climate change is by building these things. And together, we've got to try and find a way to do it that's the least harmful method. It's got to be a, uh, a kind of a consensus building process and communities need to be... Uh, on board with the project. It can't be rammed and down people's throats and forced upon people. And yeah, as as comes to mining, that it, it's it's an uncomfortable uh, thing to uh, navigate. And communities need to have more rights to stop toxic mines in their communities. And so it's a big tangled mess, and it's a difficult problem to untangle. Um, on a on a local level, it's it's a it's it's related to imperialism. It's related to the way that a corporation in a wealthy country like Australia will have a rare earths facility like the Linus uh, facility in Malaysia, or um, mining at, at the Freeport mine. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a difficult. Yeah, uh, or mining for silver and um, other metals in Chile or mining for lithium in Bolivia. So I think, yeah, this question of wealthy white people in a minority of the world, in places like Australia, the USA and Europe, dictating the terms of resource extraction in countries in the global south that the workers get paid crap, people get killed on the job, waterways are permanently polluted. Um, that imperialist dynamic must be tackled as part of responding to the climate crisis. It's about the scales too, isn't it? It's about scale. Like I've had a conversation with someone who's a, a lab technician who sees that uh, a big farmer uh, the, the the level of um, money that's put into being able to come up with something uh, requires very large-scale investment, so very large-scale investment. If you look at generation of energy, in some experiments in Australia, some uh, country towns, isolated country towns, have generated their own power. So it's about decentralising the establishment of power production. The models that we have at the moment are all about large scale. And it's kind of interesting to realise that things like Latrobe Valley 
was created as a major investment project. But before that, people generated their electricity locally. Do you think that there's any um, there's any discussion points in that kind of idea about the scale and how people uh, think about energy production? I think this is one of the key issues raised both in Planet of the Humans and by Alexander Dunlap. And in certain instances, localization is a good idea. But I think there's, this is actually one of the key weaknesses of their arguments is they've kind of got a ideological predisposition towards local is better, small is better. And there's a contradiction there because they're also saying renewable energy is wasteful. There's all of this toxic mining that happens and all this energy that goes into manufacturing these things. We can't just have renewables substituted for fossil fuels and continue to have a capitalist growth economy. Now, the implication there is presumably they support some level of appropriate use of renewable energy. Presumably, they want renewable energy to be used more efficiently. I wonder about that because Ozzy Zena in Planet of the Humans, he seems to be saying, nah, renewable energy, the whole thing is a huge scam. Some people seem to read between the lines and they think that Planet of the Humans is talking about more efficient use of renewables. I didn't get that from the film at all. I got the impression that it's all a big scam. Renewables are irredeemably destructive and we should walk away from them and walk out into the bush and live in little localised communities and grow our own vegetables. Alexander Dunlap, I think, doesn't quite go that far and seems to acknowledge that there is some role for renewables, but we can't do it like is happening under capitalism. Now, that being the case, what does the efficient use of renewables look like? Now, I was a reviewer of the Zero Carbon Australia 2020 report um, released by Beyond Zero Emissions 10 years ago. And one of the key ideas that underpins that report is for you to have a 100% renewable energy system that doesn't require fossil fuel backup and that doesn't have blackouts and that has renewable, uh, reliable electricity, geographic distribution is pivotal because the sun doesn't always shine everywhere and the, the wind doesn't always blow everywhere. And the way that you get around that is by having a very large interconnected grid. Now that's not a politically palatable idea for someone who's advocating a return to the local as the overarching solution. But in terms of the physics, that's how you do renewables. You've got to have a big grid running from all the way from Queensland down to Tassie and across to Perth so that when the sun isn't shining somewhere, it is shining somewhere else. The contradiction here is that if you want to go super local and have only each town and each city provide its own electricity and we get rid of grids, we don't connect cities to cities anymore, then you actually have to places like Sydney and Melbourne, they're actually quite cloudy because they're right on the coast. 
your best solar resources are much further inland. So you actually end up having to build a lot more wind and solar resource. You have to build a lot more redundancy into the system. You have to have a lot more of these nasty toxic batteries if you want to cut off your little island of a self-contained uh, community or city from everyone else based on this principle of localization. Now, if you're out in the back of Burke and you've got a little town, that's a different situation because in that case, A, there's less cloudy days out there, so you've got much better solar resource, and B, improving electrical infrastructure to run it out there may require more resources than having a localised grid. So I'm not saying there is no situation ever where a localised microgrid uh, is, is the best situation. Like in many cases, particularly in more rural contexts, that is definitely a good way to go. But with big cities, unless we're talking about emptying cities out and getting everyone to move out into the bush, the way to power cities necessarily if we're gonna if we're gonna stop burning fossil fuels we've got to have a distributed renewable energy system that is spread over a wide geographic area and i feel like uh, dunlap and co are trying to shoehorn the 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 technical arguments into their ideological preference towards localization and so I, I think localization is part of the solution to our climate and ecological crisis, but I don't think it's the headline big solution. And if we just go local, that's magically gonna fix everything. I think actually the more difficult reality to navigate is that in some cases bigger actually is better. So, so really, it's about the priorities and 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 what you actually include in the conversation when you want to get a result. Mm, I mean, for me, I grew up in Newcastle, the world's biggest coal port. I got involved in climate campaigning in the early to mid two thousands. I went to the first people's blockade of the world's biggest coal port where we all paddled out and blocked the coal ships. I thought, this is great. But at a certain point, it's like, what's the point of blockading the world's biggest coal port if we don't have a viable plan for what the alternative is? And there was a big gap there. And that's where I really liked what Beyond Zero Emissions did because they didn't just make this general assertion that, we can go to 100% renewables, they sat down and put a huge amount of time and energy and effort into proving that this can be done. They've modelled the wind and the sun all across the country and they, they kind of optimised this system. They proved it can be done. And I don't think that Alexander Dunlap and others have done that groundwork and shown we live on a planet of nearly 8 billion people. We know that more than half of them live in cities. What does this return to the local look like at a global level? How do we, how do we, how do, we do that without unintended consequences like 
urban sprawl on steroids? Why do we have to all grow our own vegetables? What about the large number of people who live in apartments and don't have a yard? Do they need to move out to the suburbs and get a house with a quarter acre block so that they can grow their own veggies? Because that's this kind of abstract thing, which unlike wind and solar is going to allow us to stop using fossil fuels. Like I feel like they're very good at pointing out the limitations and problems with renewable energy and they make a lot of valid points, but their alternative vision for how we stop burning fossil fuels is quite short on detail. And that's not acceptable. Like this is really urgent. We have to decarbonize. We have to stop burning fossil fuels or we're going to have something that's much worse we're going to have a global sacrifice zone we're going to have complete deglaciation of of the world's glaciers we're going to have melting of our terrestrial ice caps we're going to have 80 meters sea level rise we're going to have heat waves that you can't live through unless you've got air conditioning like runaway climate change is a it's it's a problem on a on a magnitude much greater than um, the impacts of mining, and it will impact people in the global south disproportionately. And I don't think it's really good enough just to say, "Oh, wind and solar are the new renewable, uh, are the new fossil fuels. We can't have wind and solar because they're just as bad." Without giving a detailed vision of what the alternative is and I'm, I'm not really convinced by Alexander Dunlap's interview that there is a actually a detailed vision of what that really looks like. A weak solidarity Brecky team listener when despite the cancellation of the Olympics Troubadour Aussie is still working on its gymnastic skills which sadly need a lot more work. It'll need every minute of the extra year's grace as big supremo scuttled them more late son and the teams swaying precariously between supporting our very very close friend the US of the UN of the US of the world in attacking evil China politically and our dependence on not so evil China economically for at the moment its combined score is naught and only naught because you can't get a minus score I raise this because the Socialist Party came up with its solution to the balancing problem in an interview with its would-be minister for going overseas all the time, Penny Left Wing, who got stuck right into the government. Did she get stuck right into the government until she was asked what the Socialist Party would do differently? At this point, she just happened to agree with the government on everything, except, and here's the critical ideological difference, she would attack evil China much more nicely. Also heard an interview this week with a bloke described as the head of sustainability at Transfer the Profits Urban. Our purpose is to provide transport benefits for the community. What selfless altruism, like ramming up its toll rates in the middle of a pandemic. The bloke was telling us how Transfer the Profits Urban was so committed to the environment, which it displays by urging as many trucks and cars a day as possible to spew their pollution into the environment to which it is so committed, which in turn spews as much over-increase, ever-increasing profits into its coffers. Coffers and coffins, a direct relationship. 
You'd think people who run a public road system for their private profit, requiring them to get as many polluters on the road as possible, would at least have the decency to shut up about their environmental credentials, which are somewhere deep in miners' territory. Speaking of coffers and coffins, Scuttle there been announcing a three-step program to get the greatest little economic order of them all back on its feet, said there could be further outbreaks and more coffins as we attempt to fill the private coffers. Uh, Scuttlebeam, you're saying we can now relax because the steps we've taken, including isolation and distancing, have reduced the impact substantially? Exactly. Now the economy, you, you mean the caring business class. Let me finish. Now the caring business class can benefit from the sacrifices people have made, and I am proud of those people. Uh, but you're saying many of those people you're so proud of may now die when we stop practicing that which has saved many lives. To be honest, I wouldn't expect too many more people to die in the second wave than if we maintain the policies which devastated the economy. The caring business class has suffered enough. Well, he's a committed Christian. He knows, okay, a few more people will die in the interest of the economy, but it's up to them. If they're good, they'll go straight to heaven and be better off. Coffers and coffins. Or coughs, because as caring business class keeps ordering the government to cough up, big economic supremo Josh Friday Icebergs carried out his orders perfectly. Nonetheless, the caring business class has warned Scuttledem, Josh and the team, not to discontinue paying their wages bill as they kickstart the old economy, expressed among many by our old mate, the small caring business profits council's Peter Strongarm, the workers, who made yet another convincing case. If it's cut short, that would just create huge stress and chaos. What it really needs is certainty. See, there's another, other essential for the business class to do that which they do. Certainty. Certainty and flexibility. It's all they need. Certainty and flexibility, and they can work wonders for all of us. We need the certainty with pay our workers and the flexibility not to have to pay them. Pete was all common sense. Imagine how stressful, how chaotic life would be for poor caring employers if over and above employing workers, they also had to pay them. And Peter was backed up by a shop-fitting caring employer of 58 staff, all on job keeper, who said he would have to sack or, sorry, sadly have to let go about 20 of the staff he so cares about if he had a footies wages bill himself. And good news for caring employers, the Witch Bank, which used to be our bank, is offering a dedicated JobKeeper helpline. At a time when we know small businesses are working hard to support their employees, immediate help matters, Witch Bank, which used to be advertisers must be a misprint, surely. Don't they mean working hard to ensure the government supports their workers? The helpline, bank spokesperson Charles Rippemoff explained, advises caring employers how to rip off their workers and the government simultaneously. Win-win! One of the great minds, the Minister for Keeping Us Secure, Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Constable Peter Duffer, entered the discussion around the need to preserve the health of the economy over the health of the community and told us the reopening of the economy should be in a graduated way like. 
no idea from where Constable Duffer graduated, or probably didn't, other than the mind-stretching challenge, sorry, police academy, academy and police is pretty close to an oxymoron, I would have thought. Anyway, should be in a graduated way, Pete said, and I rather think he meant gradual-like. Now, I must be critical of those people who would question the word of two great international leaders, US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, and his secretary for world state Mike Pompeo or else, who has significant proof that the virus emanated from a Wuhan laboratory and was deliberately unleashed on the world, on liberty, freedom and democracy, sadly via many thousands of evil China's own citizens' debt. Are those questioning suggesting great men like Donald and Mike Pompeo or else tell the truth? We can expect the significant proof, greatest proof ever, ever, to be released any day now. Asked when it would be released, Donald was thoughtful. We'll see, we'll see. Donald keeps blaming his predecessor, Barack Obama, for any problem that might arise, because no problem has anything to do with Donald. Although naturally, Donald himself self-awarding himself the Nobel Peace Prize doesn't criticise the peace credentials of his Nobel Peace Laureate predecessor, slaughtering thousands, wedding parties and other threats to liberty, freedom and democracy, murdered across the globe with the push of a button in the bowels of the Pentagon, proving war is peace. But for those areas where Donald has attacked him, Obama responded. Donald's response to COVID-19 was absolute disaster. Where would that come from? Talk about envy, uh, which would be the only thing green about either of them. No, no, take that back. Just a silly, unsubstantiated thought. It's only because of the coronavirus that Donald has been forced to lift all environmental controls on the great US of resource industry, allowing its stroke them to treat the environment as they see fit, rendering unfit. After all, Donald, with his normal balanced consideration, tells us every time the environment gets a mention that thanks to him, the US of has the cleanest air and water in the whole world. Cleanest ever, ever. But I've gone off on all sorts of tangents. Obama's attack. Again, Donald responded with that normal balanced consideration without a hint of hyperbole. I have saved thousands of lives. He stuck it up, Obama. Sadly, not the 80,000 who died or will die. Must be their own fault. They didn't let Donald save them, or maybe Donald knows they were killed by Barack Obama. Unlike Donald's very, very, very close friend, the filthy, filthy rich supremo of Princess Cruises, which attempted to build up the world's immunity by giving COVID-19 to as many passengers as possible, to then spread to as many people as possible, as responsible a caring business supremo as Donald could find. Okay, okay, Princess Cruises keeps being convicted of serious pollution as it dumps its waste into the briny, but the CEO told the court the great company was really and truly sorry. And in the next case, the CEO told the court the great company was really and truly sorry. Well, as thanks for its contribution to spreading COVID-19 worldwide in the interests of immunity across the oceans it pollutes, Donald has appointed his very, very close friend, the Princess Cruises' filthy, filthy rich supremo too, a caring business advisory committee he has appointed to get the greatest little economic order back on its feet. 
We can be confident they'll put the health of the people ahead of all other considerations, like their filthy, filthy rich profits. Finally, break from normal, the death of the iconic union leader and environmentalist Jack Mundy, famous for the green bands, for saving so much of Sydney, which developers have drooled over for years, public housing and community assets, and equally important, a belief in political rotation, serving two terms as union secretary and moving on, having led the union with membership backing and supporting the feminist movement of fighting for women to work in the construction industry, support for the gay community and gender issues, for indigenous causes indeed, for the broad spectrum of progressive issues, for believing in socially useful work, that workers should not perform non-socially useful jobs like the defence industry, making weapons that kill. After resigning as secretary, Jack went back on the job, but very quickly there was a ban on him working in the industry, and for years he was unable to get work, living off the occasional speaking gig, while his wife Judy went back to uni studying law and later went to the bar. For years he served on the state and federal councils of the Australian Conservation Foundation, and speaking of going to the bar, Jack and I often did. Interestingly, when I stayed with Judy and Jack at their place in Croydon, Sydney Croydon, when we went to the pub on Saturday Arvo, the, the blokes there admired Jack not so much as one of the great figures in Australian unionism, but because he'd been a champion rugby player, which brought him to Sydney in the first place. But we remember Jack Mundy as a magnificent union leader and environmentalist he was. Thanks for all, comrade. Good morning. Hi, this is Liz Stringer, and you're listening to The Mighty 3CR on 855 AM and digital radio, 3cr.org.au. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. We finished the program with some interesting facts about how international finance and governments are spanners in the works for a sustainable industry and energy democracy. First up, Kate Lee, Executive Officer of, of AFIDA, Union Aid Abroad, and follow up with Trevor Gall, National Policy Research Officer for the Electrical Trades Union. I also want to start by acknowledging Aboriginal land. I'm here on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation in Sydney and sovereignty was never ceded. This will always be Aboriginal land. For those people that don't know Union Aid Abroad, just briefly, uh, Union Aid Abroad AFIDA is the global justice organisation of the Australian Union Movement, established in 1984 by the ACTU and works with unions and community organisations, organising for equality and justice internationally. Uh, look, what I plan to do today was link into this debate by focusing on uh, the role of the international finance institutions, particularly in the Asia-Pacific region, and our fears that business as usual uh, will continue for them in the approach that they've had in terms of forcing a, a neoliberal energy agenda um, in the global south. But firstly, I want to acknowledge um, the work of Trade Unions for Energy Democracy, which over the last seven years has worked with unions globally and union solidarity organisations like ours in development of a progressive worker-focused analysis of the energy and transition debates. For, as you've heard, public and social ownership of energy, for unionised and decent jobs in low carbon industries and for affordable renewable energy for all. Steward and its analysis has assisted unions in organising against privatisation and in national level political campaigning for, safe, for a safe climate for us all. 
The information I'm going to discuss with you today is indeed drawn from research that TUED assisted us with for Indonesia, Vietnam and the Philippines. And I acknowledge Sean, his co-worker John Treat and Afida's Tom Reddington for their work. And I might just add, any union can join TUED and in doing so, we'll get better informed and be part of the global movement fighting for energy systems that can deliver us a safe climate. And just to emphasise, TUED isn't just for the energy unions, it's for all unions. Everyone has a stake in the urgent transition and I encourage unions all to get more involved. Here in Australia, uh, we know the union movement has battled the conservative right to keep energy in public hands and so too of unions around the world. But for unions in poorer countries globally, there's another barrier in the struggle for public ownership in the form of the finance dependency created by the international finance institutions, the IFIs as they're known, the World Bank, the Asia Development Bank, the International Monetary Fund, for example. And I'm going to give a couple of examples of their influence in Southeast Asia. But to recap quickly on the problem specifically for South Asia and Southeast Asia, I think this is worth doing. The current one degree Celsius of human-created global warming is already diminishing workers' livelihoods and eroding basic human rights in South Asia and Southeast Asia. These are among the world's most vulnerable regions to climate change as you know, and the workforce is already increasingly exposed to extreme climate risks. And these risks, the impacts are greater for vulnerable workers. 70% of people in South Asia and Southeast Asia work in informal um, economies. And so they're so much more vulnerable. Increases in extreme heat are reducing available work hours and directly diminishing incomes for workers. For example, um, according to ILO research, Cambodian workers are set to lose 8% of productive days by 2030, with 769,000 jobs lost if we continue on the global warming trajectory. But the picture, and you saw the graph that Sean put up there about um, increase in coal use. I don't know if people noticed that yellow wedge that was Asia. Southeast Asia and South Asia have rapidly increasing electricity demands as their economies develop and populations grow, and their countries are turning to polluting fossil fuels to meet this demand and have been for um, some years. Together, they're responsible for 50% of the world's planned coal growth, 50%. And this is propelled by an increase in the seaborne thermal trade, um, particularly from Indonesia and Australia as the largest exporters into um, those regions. And obviously, this directly threatens the ambitious of um, the Paris Agreement. Since the 1997 Asian financial crisis, the IFIs, the international finance institutions, have imposed neoliberal policy on capital-starved developing economies of Southeast Asia. The energy sector has been a key focus, and the IFIs have actively imposed for-profit motives through privatisation, deregulation and liberalisation of energy. And this has led to increasing prices for households and industry. It's eroded trade union power. Um, and while the reforms have met widespread protest and resistance by workers and unions and civil society in many countries, the impact has been brutal and devastating. And capital continues to reshape and reinvent its attempts to impose the deregulation of energy systems. So to give you an example there, renewable energy, you know, particularly prior to COVID, was a new frontier of IFIs in Southeast Asia. 
and they've tried to marketise these new renewables. Um, there are no examples that we know of of unionised decent work in renewable industries across the region, and IFIs have made greening synonymous with neoliberal approaches. So they've encouraged the growth of private models in new, in new renewable energy, such as IPPs or independent power producers. So while there has been some growth in, in uh, renewable energy jobs, uh, they've not been good jobs representing decent work with trade union rights. So three very quick examples from our immediate region to give you a bit more of a picture. In the Philippines, um, an example where the IFIs have had perhaps the most success in implementing a brutal neoliberal agenda, resulting in skyrocketing inequality, a broken energy system with the highest price of electricity in Asia. Totally unaffordable and 10% of the population has no access at all. Decent work has been eroded and unions have been brutally crushed in that sector. In Indonesia, we see the IFIs failing to fully impose the model uh, with energy unions leading a decades-long struggle to keep energy public, including a number of constitutional court challenges. However, privatisation has continued through the back door with the most new generation brought in from the IPP model. Vietnam, perhaps, and partly because of its um, political system, provides an example of some resistance to this approach and the success of an alternative public goods approach in some respects. It's resulted in more inclusive development and one of the lowest prices of electricity in Asia, which has been acknowledged by the World Bank. But despite this, the World Bank continues to push its agenda and Vietnam is currently grappling with large-scale what they call equitisation, which is their equivalent of privatisation, state of the state-owned energy sector, including one of the largest pipelines of thermal coal in the region and indeed the world. So I don't have much more time than that to give you a little bit of an overview, but in terms of, you know, one of our fears is that we've heard even in recent weeks that, you know, uh, the IMF has acknowledged what they're calling non-traditional approaches of governments right now under COVID, that is uh, government, massive government support um, uh, in support of private um, of the private sector, but they also expect things to bounce back to the way they were in business as usual. So we're concerned that there won't be much reprieve from this agenda from the IFIs. In closing, Afid has been working with unions in the Asia Pacific region on concrete projects to challenge the impacts of this agenda and to build support for renewable and democratic controlled and public alternatives um, in terms of energy. And I don't have time to explain those today, uh, but for more information, you can go to our website, which is www.afida.org.au, or contact Tom Reddington, who's our climate and energy organiser um, via our website. Uh, we really welcome your interest and involvement, um, and so do get in touch. Uh, right now, unless we also reinvent our notions of solidarity between the global north and the south, uh, we won't be able to um, uh, hold back, our fears won't be able to hold back the tide of um, uh, the IFIs and their continuing agenda. And so we're looking for new ways in which we can uh, link uh, global north countries like Australia and Europe in support of these um, uh, campaigns and demands in the global south. So I'll begin by acknowledging I'm on Wurundjeri country, uh, the Woiwurrung Woonwurrung language groups, and I think it's important to note that there can be no 
energy and climate justice without First Nations justice. Um, what I'm going to try and do is take you on a very quick journey uh, and give you some perspective of what all of these neoliberal approaches have looked like in Australia to perhaps give you some sense of the scale of the challenge that we're up against. When we think about emissions reductions and climate action, uh, why is energy so important? From Australia's perspective, it's a third of all of our emissions. And the table on the right-hand side of the screen there shows all of the uh, power stations in Australia, mostly high emissions power stations that are scheduled to close in the next five years. Uh, and it doesn't include the 10 or so that have closed in the last 10 years. So uh, people talk about uh, a transition uh, as if it's something that's coming. It's not coming. It's been going on for a decade and it's been managed terribly. Uh, and also, if we can get our emissions down in the energy sector, then the flow-on effects is that we can get our emissions down in other sectors through the electrification of those sectors. And so thinking about Australia, we have this thing they call the national electricity market. It's quite interesting because the first thing you'll notice is that it's not national, even though it's called that. Um, and we consume something like 200 terawatt hours of energy every year. About a quarter of that is consumed by households, a quarter of it by businesses, and the other half by the mining, manufacturing and agricultural industry. So you can see if we can lower emissions in the energy sector, then straight away 50% of all consumption will have a uh, compounding effect. So it is critical. And whilst the Northern Territory and Western Australia aren't connected into our national electricity market, they are regulated in the same sort of fashion and face the same challenges. So in the mid-90s, uh, Australia experienced some of the cheapest electricity prices in the world. And uh, December last year, um, we were uh, sitting around some of the most expensive electricity prices in the world. And very hard to compare apples with apples because of all of the strange things that they've done with our network. Uh, but... Uh, We've got a benchmark it. Uh, you pick a reference point and do your best to try and get an equivalent. But, um, you know, it's not all privatisation. It's uh, if you look around our country at uh, various components of our energy network, uh, largely there are still large sections of Australia which are public owned. But uh, despite this table presenting that in a fairly binary fashion, the concept of private and public is not binary. Uh, some of those privately owned that I've flagged up there are technically still owned by the public, but they've just been given 100-year leases to private, normally multinational corporations. And quite often, very often in the energy industry in Australia, uh, foreign governments buy our energy assets more than uh, individual corporations. And then when I talk about the public owned, that what still is publicly owned, often it's public owned but not democratically controlled through these issues of corporatisation and marketisation of the energy sector. And so if we're going to talk about those issues, we're probably best exploring them through some of the information in an Australia Institute report with that title, I'd encourage you to look it up, the privatisation, marketisation and corporatisation of the energy sector. Um, and what we see in 20-odd years of this neoliberal approach is if you look towards the bottom of this table, the blue-collar workforce, despite the rapid expansion of the energy systems in Australia, 
the blue-collar workforce that actually goes out and does the work uh, has only grown by about 15% in that 20-odd years from 96 to 2016. But managers and sales workers, of all people, have exploded. And you'll see that sales worker figure broadly defined, 396% increase, and uh, that's increased even further since 2016. We look at the impacts of privatisation and profits. Uh, here's a $1,855 a year electricity bill from AGL. Uh, of that, about one quarter of that person's annual power bill is profit. What we also know from that report is about $80 per year of that power bill goes to AGL advertising to you to buy the electricity that you're already buying. That's an essential service. Uh, and I won't even get into the profits that the CEOs make. Um, energy companies are notorious tax avoiders, um, which obviously starves public revenue, which obviously starves our capacity for infrastructure investment and expansion. And then on top of that, we've got this thing called the market, where we have a pretend stock market that's completely fabricated to buy and trade and sell our electricity on, which allows us, I talked about 33 cents a kilowatt. Uh, these figures on the screen are megawatts, but it allows us under this market for uh, companies to buy and sell electricity from as little as minus one cents a kilowatt, and you heard me right, minus one cents, up to $14.50 per kilowatt hour of electricity. And this market has all the features of a normal stock market, including hedging and dodgy insider trading and all of the other challenges that markets face. Um, and then we get into the regulation. So we've got this really fragmented, bizarre, fake market and all of the other things attached to it. And I did a little exercise in 16, 17 financial year of pulling, there are principally five federal regulatory bodies that oversee the electricity industry. And I'm not even getting into the states yet. And I pulled out their books and found that the total cost uh, basically borne by consumers of these five regulatory bodies comes to about a quarter of a billion dollars per year that electricity consumers are paying for. Uh, and then we've got some fairly shadowy regulatory bodies created that it's even harder to find the money out that they're, that they're spending. But um, broadly, what this framework looks like is that at the top, we've got this COAG Energy Council of all the energy ministers advised by the Energy Security Board that give directions to three principal energy bodies that regulate, uh, completely over-regulate from one end to the other of the energy industry and regulate the wrong things in our view. Um, and so what is the outcome of all of this regulatory oversight is that we see jobs are lost, particularly in regional Australia. Maintenance is absolutely slashed and upgrades and expansions to the network, which are desperately needed to bring it into the, the 21st century, are either deferred, delayed or completely dismissed. We've seen billions go out of the industry with no corresponding reduction in power prices. Uh, we see a energy um, system that is not designed for two-way flow of power. And like I say, we've seen massive reductions in, in good, uh, long-term, steady, unionised jobs and apprenticeships and these sorts of opportunities. Um, around planning and investment, 
what we're seeing is that the federal government is actually uh, obstructing renewable energy deployment in this country. The institutions that were created, federal public institutions created to try and promote and fund and plan the expansion are being defunded and left to wither on a vine. And in fact, some states uh, we're seeing uh, have acknowledged how broken the system is by actually passing legislation to start extracting themselves out of this national electricity framework because it's simply not working. Um, and then renewables. We've got quite a bit of deployment in renewables has occurred, but uh, the story's the same. You know, who'd have thought the Australian story is the same as the Philippines story, but it is. Um, we have... Uh, non-electrical workers building our renewable energy developments. Uh, we are finding that many of them are exploited foreign labour. We've uh, Our members went on strike up north in Queensland because we found a bunch of exploited foreign workers on a job being paid uh, $30 a day. And we're actually seeing employers set up dedicated websites to advertise and promote to um, foreign labour to build the renewables. Um, in our sector to maximise the profits. So I guess, you know, when we're looking at it, the issues that we're up against are complex and they're varied uh, and we have lots of barriers to the rapid decarbonisation of the system and there is no, you know, choosing one little pet project is not going to fix it. What we really need is to uh, get political willpower to change the approach and we need massive reform. We need a real real new uh, rethink to what's going on. Uh, and so I guess the last comment I'll make is that we already have the government talking about uh, austerity as the answer the other side of this uh, crisis. Uh, but we have others talking about reforming our economy to make it work for us. And we really need to flesh out these debates, particularly when it comes to the energy sectors. That's it for Solidarity Breakfast for this week. Tune in next week for more riveting source to start your day.
Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.